As we continue our journey tonight in the second letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, we'll pick up chapter 5, the first eight verses, if you'd turn there. It's been often said, and very frequently we repeat things like, it's impossible to preach the real gospel without giving the bad news about sin. You can't just give the good news Uh, about salvation in Christ Jesus without giving the bad news that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? Well, the truth is, there's bad news about who we are as human beings. Because these bodies were built for this earth, and while they are absolutely fearfully and wonderfully made, created by an omniscient, omnipotent creator who knew exactly what he was doing in creating these bodies, the bad news is these bodies are subject to decay. Amen? Amen. I can tell you that's true. I have a knee that testifies of it. I have a neck that testifies of it. And I have zero hair left. So we're, we're constantly in a state of decay. Here's the good news. It isn't going to matter when you get your new upgraded model. Amen? One day you're trading in your earthly tent. And so we come to this incredible passage of Scripture that uh, very often we use at memorial services and funerals, but it's really an encouragement to the body of Christ. And Paul is writing about these earthly tents and the groaning that goes on while we're still in them. And so we'll pick up in verse 1 here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And let's pray as we ask the Lord to use his word to speak to us. Father, we again, many of us tonight are groaning in our earthly tents. But we surely don't want to be unclothed. And we know that these earthly tents are not actually us. That it is in fact our spirit, it is our soul that is the eternal portion But you've given us a house to live in while we're here, and you're going to give us a house suited for heaven one day. And we pray that you would just speak to us about this glorious hope that we have, that we look forward to uh, when these earthly tents have served out their good purpose. And so, Lord, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, every once in a while somebody will say, you know, gosh, you're kind of preoccupied with death. Uh, I'm not preoccupied with death at all. But I know that the scriptures paint a picture of exactly two types of people. People that are alive and people that are dead. And every one of us who is alive is on his way to being dead, on her way to being dead. One day you are actually going to be dead, whether you die of natural causes or the Lord takes us, your earthly tent is one day going to dissolve. You're going to cash in the tent that you're currently in. Now, I don't know, I'm looking around the room, I'm trying to see, there's some of us who are a little bit more aged than others. Um, I I grew up in the 1950s and 60s. In the 1950s and 60s, there was this huge uh, boom of car camping, and probably most of you can remember back, uh, maybe some of you remember those window air conditioners that you put inside, you rolled up in the window of that Ford Fairlane station wagon that could hold 705 people. And it could hold like 12 tons of gear because that's about what a tent used to weigh. And some of you probably remember those old cabin tents. They're not like the ones that we buy at Costco today that come in a bag about this big and when you pop them out and 
set them up. They weighed, you know, 10, 15, 20 pounds. These things took a crane to put them inside of your car. They were made out of heavy-duty canvas. They were covered with wax. They had sometimes steel poles, every once in a while aluminum. They were heavy. And the problem was, every year you'd roll that tent out, and, and the wax would flake off of it, and you'd find out that some mice had made their home in it between last summer and this summer, and you'd have to patch it. And you'd take and sew a patch over the holes, and you'd pour candle wax over it and rub that in. We did this all the way until I, I was out of Boy Scouts. But those old tents reached a point in time to where it was wetter inside than it was outside if it rained. Those tents were absolutely useless when they got past their serviceable life expectancy. They, they were meant to keep the rain out for a time. But there came a point in time when they no longer kept out the rain. The holes that the mice went through were big enough to get dogs and cats through. And the poles were now made out of pieces from something else. And the tent was all cattywampus and you couldn't find the stakes for it anymore. And you needed to roll that tent up and throw it away. That is the picture. That's actually the exact picture that the Apostle Paul uses here. He, of course, course uses it in a context of some 2,000 years ago. But verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, this dwelling place, this abiding place is destroyed, we have a building from God. And when he says we have a building, he's talking about every last person who names the name of the Lord. We have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. And so Paul's saying, look, one day when this earthly tent is destroyed... And I get involved in conversations every once in a while, and people have their opinions about it, and it's perfectly fine if you think one way versus another way. But I have people come to me, and you know, it's like, well, you have to be buried this way. Or your body needs to be prepared like this. Or if you get cremated, I mean, oh, wow, you're, I mean, you're turned back into ash. Look, however you die, the end result's the same. Whether you rot very slowly in a casket or whether you are barbecued in an oven, you're going to turn into dust and nobody's going to want to look at that because that earthly tent has served out its useful purpose. So whether you happen to be the one poor person who is at ground zero when an A-bomb goes off or or your body is well-prepared and you're stuck in a mausoleum like they have in Europe and you can still go see 500-year-old dead people. Look, they're D-E-A-D dead, okay? They do not look good. They're not coming back. 
When your earthly tent is done with its purpose, you have a new building not made with hands in the heavens fashioned by God. And so we yearn for that day. We look forward to that day. I don't fear death. I don't fear taking my last breath in this body. We, we may fear how that happens. Nobody wants to suffer. But the fact of the matter is, what awaits us is way better than what we currently have. The new model is infinitely better than the old one. Amen? Some of you can remember your first car, and we'll, we'll take it to a different place. You remember that first car. Now, back in my day, uh, most everyone got cars that barely ran as their first car, and you could still work on them yourself. In fact, you and several other people could get under the hood and work on them together. And so we changed spark plugs and spark plug wires and distributors, distributor caps and rotors and all those kinds of things. But those cars very often were held together with bailing wire. They were held together with duct tape. They were held together with, I remember doing a muffler repair, with aluminum foil and a coat hanger. Back when coat hangers were not made out of plastic but out of metal. Remember remember those days? You you could kind of keep working on them. But pretty soon your car got a nickname like Old Smokey. Or something that's even worse than that, which I cannot repeat. It wasn't good. They burned more oil than gasoline, amen? You remember those days? And you're driving down, you were just glad you weren't walking, amen? But there were people dying from the smoke trail you were leaving. Because the same is true for our bodies. The doctors praise God for medical professionals, amen? They can keep these bodies running for a long time, and some of us got some duct tape and some bailing wire. You know, we, we have things going on in our bodies that we, we keep going, and they're, they're still running, they're still serviceable, and they're way better than us not having one. Amen? Paul's saying, look, we're looking forward to the new model. And then you have that experience where you had your first car that, Back in the day, I mean, we used to buy cars for $150. Now you can't get a tank of gas for $150, you know what I'm saying? And then you you get your first brand new car off the showroom. Woo! You get it, just the smell alone. It's like it no longer smells like mice and old fast food. Now imagine what God can do if he created these bodies fearfully and wonderfully to last 70, 80, 90, 100 years to self-diagnose, self-replicate cells, to, to pull energy out of the food that you take in, to, to take those nutrients and keep you running all day every day, to cause those little mitochondrial motors in every one of your cells to run, do all the things that we do. Imagine if God made these, our temporary bodies, so amazingly. Can you imagine 
what the new showroom model is going to look like. I can't wait. Mine's going to go zero to 60 in like 2.3 nanoseconds. It's like, I'm going to get some wings back. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. And notice he uses the first person plural here, we. Why, why would he say that when he's talking about our bodies and them being destroyed? Because your body is currently the dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. The real you, the we in all of us, is actually our spirit and our soul. We need a place for that to reside. God is spirit, amen? When Jesus came, what did he do? He inhabited a body. That body was his dwelling place while he was here. He had one, you have one, we have them. And they've been suited for this particular earth. We don't want to be found without a place to dwell. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. In other words, more wonderfully clothed. That mortality may be swallowed up by life. You see, as a person, as a human being, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Amen? So, so one day, all of us, because the wages of sin is death, all of us are going to die. When Adam sinned, we all got the curse of sin and death. Like it or not, that's our lot. So one day, we're all going to take our last breath. We took our first one. But in this case, eternal life is swallowing up that death. It's like, look, that's the end you used to have as an eternal entrance into damnation. And now that last breath in the body that you currently have is the entrance into eternity and to a new body that's not made with hands. It's in the heavens. It is a glorious day. Amen? Free from the bondage that we're currently under. Free from these mortal bodies. Free from the aches and pains and free from the disease. How about free from the capacity to sin any longer? Anybody looking forward to that day? Hallelujah. Amen? Swallowed up. And now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. Who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. In other words, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you is a sure sign this is going to happen. So, we are always confident knowing that while we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Whatever is not of faith is sin, amen? We're, We're walking lives of faith. I don't have a signed contract, so to speak. You, you know when you, you buy something anymore on the internet, you always get emailed a receipt for what you purchased? You, you don't actually get one of those from God. It's like this is, you don't get a picture of your new body. You don't get a list of all of the things that it will have. You don't get the, you know, the, the, all of the, the individual component parts that your new body's. You don't have that. But you do have a guarantee. That guarantee is the Holy Spirit in you. And the Holy Spirit is convicting and convincing you that these things are true because everything else that we've tested in Scripture when we test it is true. And so if God says it, we believe it. 
And so I now walk around in this new space and place where it's just like, I'm getting a new model. I'm going to cash this old one in one day, and I'm getting a new, fully equipped, packed to the gills, last name, of course, model. Don't come looking at our house for your model, okay? For we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. What glorious hope. You see, when the Jewish people began their sojourn in the wilderness, so when they crossed over the Red Sea, when they escaped this 400 years of bondage under Pharaoh, and God delivers them in the Exodus, as he brings them out by the blood, and he brings them in to the wilderness. He needed a place to dwell. Anybody know where he dwelt? He dwelt in a tent, didn't he? This one happens to be the tent in the actual wilderness of sin in Sinai and Timnah in Israel. That's a full-scale model. But the children of Israel, as they, as they went to meet with God, they went to a tent. It was a temporary dwelling place. And when Jesus came to the earth, remember what was said of him in John chapter 1. The word became flesh and tented among us. It says tabernacled or dwelt among us. So when Jesus came, he lived in a tent. So God represented in the Old Testament that dwelt with the children of Israel, dwelt in a tent. When Jesus came, Jesus dwelt in a tent. And while you're here, you're going to dwell in, guess what? A tent. You're, in essence, tabernacling in the wilderness of sin right now. Because the world is the place that the devil currently has free rule and reign. God is still sovereign, but he's given the enemy the opportunity to afflict us, to test us, to try us. We, we fight against three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so while you're here, just like God dwelt in a tent visible in a pillar of fire and a cloud, and Jesus dwelt in a tent in his human body, so you dwell in a tent, and that tent is not your actual home. It's a temporary place for a period of time, and one day, just like that tent covered with badger skins, it was beautiful on the inside, but on the outside, it was open to the sun. On the outside, it was beat on by the wind. On the outside, the sand destroyed the badger skins. It was on the inside that was the presence of the Lord. And on the inside, that was gold. And on the inside was all the value. And just as it was there, and just as it was in Jesus, so it is in you. It is what is on the inside that is of the value. The real you is on the inside of this tent. And so God's saying, look, this tent is only going to last for a period of time. 
And so what's the promise here? Well, the promise is actually one day there's going to be a tent replacement plan. John Quincy Adams, as he's on his deathbed, was, was asked about his life. He, he was very sick. And the man that asked him, John Quincy Adams replied like this. He said, when asked how he was, he said, I am very well. Thank you, sir. However, the house in which I live is growing old. The thatch is wearing thin. It trembles at every gale. I think John Quincy Adams will soon have to move out, but he himself is very well. That's us in Christ. One day you're going to have to move out of your current dwelling place. And in Christ, gloriously, you have a mansion made by God in the heavens. And by the way, it's move-in ready. You don't need to make it yourself. It's not going to be a fixer-upper. You know, you're not all going to move to Waco. Nobody's going to have a Magnolia Farm stamp on them anywhere. It's going to be a new body built by the Lord Jesus himself. Just as Jesus described his own glorious body. He said, one day I, I am going to be glorified. The word torn down here in, the, in our passage for the tent being taken, taken down is kataluo and what it actually means is completely devastated or overthrown in other words your old tent is going to be completely done away with and that's exactly what happens our bodies made for this earth decay they're they're going to succumb to the assault of all of the forces that play on them but you're going to get a new one and i want you to notice what paul says here He's not talking as though he thought this might happen. He's absolutely confident that when he takes his last breath, he's going to get a new body. He's going to wake up in the arms of Jesus. And so when we talk about death from a Christian perspective, it's not something that we fear. It's not something we tremble at. And while it is not something also that we relish, I don't have fear of what's going to happen next. I have tremendous confidence of a future home. I have a building that was made by God in the heavens. In other words, it's heavenly. And I also don't have to fear being homeless. You see, very often, if you're one of those people who do not know the Lord and you don't have this confidence, then you fear what's on the other side. Have you ever heard people talk about that? Well, I don't know. You know, am I going to become a ghost? You know, am I going to float around with Aunt Sadie and come over to your house at night? What's going to happen? People talk like this in reality. I hear these things all the time. I don't know. But you know the strange thing is? I have yet to actually meet a person personally who said to me, I don't believe in life after death. I know people are out there that do not believe in life after death, but they are very rare. And I personally have yet to meet one. I haven't had somebody come, I don't believe that there's anything. Now the highest end of Buddhism is that your candle gets snuffed out and you become part of the the one consciousness. I realize that there are religious systems that teach that you just float off into non-existence. 
But your Bible very plainly teaches that there is not only life after death, that life after death has all of the principles that we find in the life that we currently live. At the time that these things were written, probably the, you know, one of the things that Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon faith, uh, copied from was the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And in that, it talked about the afterlife. And if you remember when Lord Carnarvon and, and Dr. Carter found the, the tomb of Tutankhamun, in it were all these elaborate grave goods, mind-boggling things, things that people rarely even had in this life. But it wasn't just beautiful golden chariots to ride off into the sunset on. There was food. There was food for the animals. There was food for people. It was like, whoa, when he comes back from the dead, we want him to be fed well. So people believe that something happens after you take your last breath. I happen to know what happens next. I'm moving into a new mansion. I'm I'm leaving this earthly tent and I'm moving in. I will not be disrobed. I'm not going to float around as some disembodied spirit. I'm, you're not going to be able to see through me no more than you could see through Jesus. I'm not going to be, you know, like, woo. I'm going to have a spiritual body. This is your present body, has a natural shape and form, subject to natural laws, so your, your body made in the heavens is going to be suited for the heavens. It, it will have capacities that we currently do not have. If you remember when Jesus, after the resurrection, remember some of the crazy things he did? Jesus materialized in a room without coming through the door. He could appear and disappear at will. He could also do a whole bunch of things that his natural body could have done before he was resurrected. He could be touched, he could be handled, he ate, he drank. But after his resurrection appearance, he could also defy the laws of gravity. So your heavenly body, because your Bible says so, there in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, your heavenly body, the new one you're going to move into, is going to be like his. Now, we don't know if that like includes everything that God can do, Jesus can do, but it does mean that you're going to be able to do some things that you can't currently do. Because you're going to live someplace you can't currently live, called heaven. Amen? Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about the expanse of heaven, but heaven is infinite. So if you're kind of tired of having a little small lot here in you know, the South Bay someplace, you've got all of eternity to figure out how to use all that space that you're going to have. And oh, by the way, you're going to be able to go from place to place without putting gas in your car. And whether you have a Prius or you have a Toyota Tundra as I have, I fill up more than you do. None of us are going to need those things because you're going to get a new body. New body and a whole new set of rules. Jesus described his as glorious, so you are going to have your tent replaced with a new glorious one. In that sense, it's going to be a whole new you. If you think back on some of the things that we know about Scripture, there's a couple of interesting stories. In in 1 Samuel chapter 28, we, we have King Saul uh, confronts the witch of Endor and, and 
King Saul says he, he wants her to summon up Samuel from the dead. And if you remember, he came back as an old man. He was actually recognizable as Samuel. If you remember in Luke's gospel, in chapter 16, one of the easiest passages to see this in, you see this incredible thing that happens there. What happened in that chapter is this. You have the story of this rich man and Lazarus. And we're told that the rich man fared sumptuously while he was in this life. He had everything he wanted. But there's a time when there's a conversation going on in Sheol, the abode of the dead. And on one side is the rich man. On the other side is Lazarus who had nothing in this life. And now he's got everything because where he's at is called paradise. And there's a divide and they cannot get to one another. And the rich man cries out, go back and tell my relatives, man. They don't want to come here. Remember what Jesus said? If they wouldn't listen before you, they're not going to listen afterwards. He says, could you bring a little water and just touch it on the tip of my tongue? That's a physical attribution in a spiritual place. So there are going to be things that you're going to be doing while you're in heaven, just as there will be things that people will be doing while they're suffering separation from God in hell. The only question is, what kind of body are you going to have, and where are you going to be? Because everybody's going to be somewhere. Everybody is going to be somewhere after they take their last breath. The only question is where. People say, well, I was just a spiritualization. You know, Jesus didn't really mean that. He wasn't describing real things. You know, after all, the lost just disappear and they become nothing and there's nothing after this life. Interestingly enough, when you study the science, if you will, or, or the, the study of proper interpretation of Scripture called hermeneutics, when the plain sense makes sense, we're not to seek any other sense. Why would Jesus be talking about a real thing with the real person in a situation to where he is speaking of the difference between life and death to somebody and then just make up this whole story? And the answer is he wouldn't. I I believe it was not only not an allegory, just like the witch of Endor saw an old man. So this parable that Jesus tells, that's because he went there and saw it. Yep, there's the the man that had nothing, and yes, there is the man that had something, and they're both in real places. It's going to be a whole new you, this house. And when you think about it, a house is slightly more permanent than a tent, amen? There was an article, it it was printed in a bunch of different news outlets today, but it was about Skid Row here in L.A., and the shot was, was down underneath an, an overpass, and it was just one tent after another tent after another tent after another tent after another tent. There were literally, what I could count, more than 30 tents in a row on a chunk of sidewalk. And there were varying colors and states of disarray. Some of the tents had tarps over the top. Some had bisqueen over the top. Some had trash bags over the top. Some of them had trash bags for doors. There were all kinds of different tents. But there was not one of them that was suitable for human habitation. And the point is this. 
there isn't a body in here that is going to forever remain a place of human habitation. They only last so long. You can only take them down and set them up so many times. You're going to eventually lose a pole. You're going to tear apart the rain fly. Something's going to happen to the zipper on the door. It is going to stop being serviceable as a tent. And then you're going to have to start putting stuff over the top of it. You're going to need to start putting a piece of plastic on for the door. It's going to get to where it's on its very last legs. And eventually what will happen is exactly what they were planning on doing in this particular case. The city was going to come in and take every last one of those tents and put them in a dumpster. That's what's going to happen to us. One day, whether you have a very beautiful dumpster in a cemetery, somebody builds you a nice edifice, and if you have a mausoleum that your family owns, I'm not picking on you in any way, shape, or form. If, if that's your family's history and you want to pay a jillion dollars for a nice elaborate casket, I'm telling you, the person in the elaborate casket is just as dead as the person who gets cremated. And they're just as useless as the person who gets cremated. And they're just as much dust and bones and ash as the person who gets cremated. Why? Because these bodies are for here. They're for a time. And once you're done with it, the real you's moving out. And you're getting a whole new you. And the person who doesn't know the Lord is also moving out of their tent. The problem is the new you that they get is going to be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's going to be suited for the environment in which they will live. Pain and anguish. And so it becomes either a passage of joy for the believer or a passage of warning for someone who doesn't know the Lord. When I read this, I'm pretty excited about it, actually. But when I read it with someone who doesn't know the Lord, man, what do you think? What's going to happen when you die? You see, me, I might be groaning. But my Bible says, by heavenly workmanship, that phrase, house not made with hands, is a single word in the Greek language. It means heavenly workmanship. It's the exact same word that Paul uses when he writes to the church at Ephesus. You are his workmanship. You're made by God. Except this is, in rel- this is in reference to what's coming after. There is a house made by God. Suitable for heavenly living. I was kind of scrolling through some of my photos today. I'm looking at all these places that you know, we've had the privilege to go. And I'm looking at how God decorates this earth. Have you ever thought about how God decorates the earth with sunsets and colors and flowers? I have some amazing pictures of sunsets. They don't even look real. God decorates this earth, which is perishing, with things like that. Have you ever looked at the intricacy of orchids? You know there's over 3,000 types of orchids on this planet? Every last one of them is different. Different colors, different arrangements of the petals, all kinds of things. Shades, hues. That's why Jesus said, Consider the lilies of the field, the sparrows of the air. If my father 
knows when a sparrow mop drops to the ground, how much more do you think he cares about you? If God so decorates this earth, which is here today, and figuratively speaking, gone tomorrow, might really be gone tomorrow, but figuratively, it's not going to last. We solve climate change. If we erase all of man's marks on this earth, if we get all the garbage off the summit of Mount Everest, if we clean up every forest, every rainforest, every river, this world is still going to get rolled up one day like a scroll. This world is temporary, but God decorates it and makes it so amazing that we sit there in our temporary bodies going, wow. If God does that, can you imagine what he's going to do when we get to heaven? Can you imagine what a sunset's going to look like in heaven if you look at the ones we have here on this earth? Can you imagine the beauty of animal life? Your Bible seems to indicate there are animals in heaven. If a lamb's going to lie down with a lion, there's going to be animals. I don't know what they're going to be. I think it's going to be like in Napoleon Dynasty. It's going to be a liger. I'm not sure. There's going to be like, I don't know. But I know this. If God decorates the temporary the way he has fearfully and wonderfully made us and the whole of creation, can you imagine what your whole new you is going to be like in heaven? I can't wait. That's why he says we earnestly yearn for these things. We desire, not a, we don't want to be clothed upon with a house. We want that one from heaven. We don't want this earthly one. This thing is fragile, it's frail. I spent part of my time in the mountains as, as an emergency medical technician with the San Bernardino County Fire Department. And for those of you that are in medicine, you know these things, and so I'm preaching to the choir here. But the amount of force and energy necessary to take your life is minuscule. It's literally eight pounds to the side of your neck. Eight pounds, a couple of diving weights to the side, or side of your neck can sever your spinal column. I've rolled up on car accidents where people completely look untouched, but they're dead. Looks like nothing happened. These are earthly tents, and they're very fragile. And yet they're also fearfully and wonderfully made. They're amazing. You ever think about what your body does every day? Recycling all of your blood volume hundreds of times? Pulling the proper nutrients out of your food? You thought about what your kidneys do and your liver does? If God put all that time, effort, and energy into making the physical you, imagine what the heavenly you is going to be like. Mind-boggling. No wonder Paul says we go from groaning to glory. Because in these earthly tents, we do some groaning, amen? Maybe you don't. I'll groan for you. I'm groaning. Started maybe a year or two ago. You know, it's kind of weird. Isn't it strange how age happens? You wake up and you look in the mirror and go, who's that? 
what'd you do with Jeff? Where's that other dude? You know, you think about all the things you can do, and it's like, you know, you, you remember back when you were actually athletic, and, you, you know, nothing bothered you, were fearless, and like, whatever happens, and, you know, you just think like you're going to live forever. Then you wake up in the morning, and you need help finding your shoes. And if you do find them, you need someone to put on your socks. And then you grab the shoes, it's like, Honey, could we get Velcro? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You groan. You're like, oh, no. I'm just going barefoot for the rest of my life. <laughs> you groan. You're like, oh, Lord, get me out of this thing. Thank you for it, but could I have the new one? Amen? That's why we groan. We earnestly long for the new you. And I love the way Paul says this. He look, he says, there's beauty that lies ahead for us. It's a beautiful thing. We're not going to be found disembodied. We won't be naked. We're, we're going to have on our best clothes. It's going to be so magnificent that basically he's saying, look, for while we're in this tabernacle, yeah, we groan, but look, what comes next is so far superior that this is going to seem like nothing. And I don't want to minimize in any way at all anyone's suffering and pain. Please don't think for a moment that I, that I intend to do that. I don't. I have sat with people recently, the last few days, immense suffering physically, There are people in this room tonight, immense suffering physically. And and no one, myself included, is diminishing that suffering. But the answer to that suffering is actually not in fixing the suffering here. It's what will happen when we get there. As glorious as it would be, and I, 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 sometimes people ask, well, why don't we pray more for cures to this and cures to that? And I go, that would be wonderful but you're still going to die. We should pray for those things, and we should put effort and time and energy into curing every disease we possibly can, but at the end, we're all still going to die. Right now, we're dying from heart disease and cancer. We're dying from all kinds of things physiologically that are destroying our body, but the fact of the matter is, if we're not dying from that, the Bible says you're going to die from something else. So, we look at the beauty of what lies ahead and go the answer to this death track that we're on, if you will, because we're all on it. Some of us are a little further along than the rest of y'all. You know, we're, we're going to get out there. We're going to go, in the Lord, we're going to praise the Lord, my earthly tents getting folded up. For people who don't know the Lord, they're going to go, oh man, it's my last week. It's my last Day, it's my last hour and this is the best see what happens for an unbeliever is this is as good as it gets for a believer this is as bad as it gets they are polar opposite as an unbeliever this life is all there is that even has a modicum of good to it what happens when you take your last breath is infinitely worse than here but for me For those of us who know the Lord, 
what happens after this life is infinitely better than what we're currently going through right now. And so it answers all the inequities. It, it erases the lives that, have, lives that have been lived with constant pain and anguish. It, it takes care of those, those things. When, when I was talking to my brother-in-law about what happened to my sister, she had a massive brain aneurysm. They revived her in the ambulance. They took her to the hospital. But, but in a matter of one hour, she went from very alive to completely blind to having a crushing headache. And then she was gone, off to heaven. I guarantee you she does not want to come back. I guarantee it. She does not want to come back to that worn-out tent. She's very thankful to be in heaven. You see, so it's beautiful what lies ahead, and so we can speak of it that way. But without Jesus, it's terrifying. We shrink back from death without Christ. Paul here gives us a pledge. He says, forever you will be with the Lord. He does not say you might be with the Lord. He doesn't say you're going to be with the Lord as long as you're good in heaven. He doesn't say you'll be with the Lord after you've spent two and a half thousand years in purgatory. He says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that word present means to be fully cognizant in the presence of the Lord. In other words, dead here, boink, there's Jesus. Fully alive. Completely transformed. Ready for eternal life in heaven. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I know some of you are going, well, I don't, still don't want to go. Okay. Stick around. The rest of us will see you there. No, oh, and I... When I talk, especially to young people, and I, and I don't want to bum anybody out. When I talk to young people, they want to get married. They want to have children, all those kind of things. It's all wonderful. Praise the Lord we get to have those experiences. But the point is this. It's beautiful on the other side. It's gorgeous when you leave this life. There isn't all of the things that, that we suffer with today when you get there. In other words... God's got this. The answers to everything, the stuff you've gone through, the pain that you're enduring even tonight. And so he says, look, he who has done this is God, who's given us the earnest of the Holy Spirit. He's, he's put that, that guarantee, that stamp in our lives. He says, look, I will do this. So when you think about your own salvation experience, remember how you used to be? And remember the transformation that happened of your mind? Your mind began to be renewed, and all of a sudden those things which you used to be engaged in, the Lord takes away. Remember that transformation that happened? Now multiply times a few billion. Because that was a transformation of your physical body, your physical mind for this physical earth. It was temporary. It was to get you through this life. 
you have a metamorphosis coming that that one pales in comparison to. You were transformed from death to life. You who were dead, Paul said, writing to the church at Ephesus there in chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but he hath made us alive, amen? Now you're going to go from alive in a perishing tent to alive in an eternal mansion in the presence of the Lord. Anybody excited about that? I am. It's like hallelujah. It's, it's not like, well, we're going to kind of be sort of a little bit better, you know, and I probably won't sin as much as I do now, you know. I, you talk to people and it's, like, it's the craziest thing. It's like they almost equate heavenly life to like this burden of having to be good for eternity. No, you will be good for eternity and you will be glorified for eternity and you will have a heavenly body suited for eternity and you're going to have eternal characteristics and in those eternal characteristics there's going to be no bad things. It's not just you're going to kind of be a remade you, you're going to be a whole new you and that whole new you is going to last forever. God's got this. If he could transform you now, how much more do you think he can transform you later? Because he did a pretty good job with this mess. Amen? At least I think he did with me. Because I know what I used to be. And I praise God I'm not what I used to be, but I also know that I'm not what I'm going to be yet. So I'm looking forward to that day when I'm going to be what I'm going to be. What God intended for eternity for me to be, I will one day be that. And so while we're here, at, we're at home in these bodies, Paul says. But these bodies were never meant to be permanent. They were always meant to be temporary. And that's why he says, be always confident. We are always confident of this. He uses the Greek word there, thorero, which is an interesting word because it means also to be of good courage. It means to be strong in your thinking. It means to be built up. It's like, yes! Not, well, I hope so. I think maybe if, I, if I'm good. You see, there are people that think that their life in heaven is going to be directly related to what they did here, and it's not. You're going to be rewarded when you get to the judgment seat, to the bema seat of Christ for the bodies done, the things done in this body. But when you get there, you're all going to be fully 100% glorified. There's not going to be any qualities or characteristics of diminished capacity in heaven. There will be no second-class citizens in heaven. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're not going to get there and, well, you know, I'm in the back. I had a guy actually tell me, well, do you think heaven has a ghetto? I'm like, no. It's like there's no, there's no hood, okay? If there is, it's all one big hood and we're all in the same hood, okay? We're all going to be in the same heaven, with the same type of glorified bodies, but we're going to know each other. Because your Bible says, as he was known, so we shall also be known. So whoever you knew here, you're going to know them there. Whatever you thought of other people, the bad parts are gone, the good parts get to stay. Isn't that amazing? That means we're not going to know a whole lot about some people. 
right? You know what I'm saying? Because when you get there, you're not going to be able to dredge that stuff up. Man, God's got this. That's why we have that glorious hope. That new home that awaits. You see, while we're here, we're actually exiled from our real home, aren't we? Very much like the children of Israel who dwelled in a tent. They were exiled into the wilderness of sin, weren't they? They they wandered around the wilderness of sin. They met with God in a tent. And it wasn't until they were delivered into Canaan that they actually got to take God out of the tent and make sure he had a building to be in. The same is true for you while you're in this life, metaphorically speaking. While you're here, you wander around the wilderness of sin. Your body's a tent. Your body is also, according to Paul, as he wrote to the Corinthians in the first letter, is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Amen? He's with you. He's in you. But one day, you're going to actually walk with him. You're going to talk with him. You're no longer going to see the invisible God. You're going to see the visible God in all of his glory and splendor. And just so nobody sends me any emails, I don't have any idea what he looks like. I didn't get like a revelation, a picture of God. But I know this, the Apostle Paul, when he was lifted up into the third heaven, said it was so glorious that he couldn't even speak about it. Because his human mind and his human lips could not give glory enough to what he saw that he couldn't even talk about it. So whatever it is, it's going to be really glorious. Amen? And so Paul had no fear. He, he walked by faith. He didn't walk by sight. He was just exactly like Abraham. When you read the hall of faith there in Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham was called to go out to a place that he would receive for an inheritance. Same as you. Abraham had zero clue about what awaited him in Canaan. He just knew he needed to walk by faith and he needed to start going. And God would get him all the way there. God would see him through and God would sustain him in the land. That's exactly what God did. And God's going to do that for us. It says, by faith he sojourned in the land of promise. In other words, Canaan was actually not his home. It was the land of promise. But the interesting thing about Abraham is is he died in faith, still looking for a better country. Still looking for something greater than what he found as he journeyed those 1,200 miles from Ur of the Chaldees, from the land of the Babylonians, as he journeyed all the way to Canaan when he got there, it was supposed to be a land flowing with milk and honey, amen? Now, when you've been to Israel and you've looked at the Jordan River Valley and you compare that to the deserts of Arabia, that is absolutely a stunning contrast. When you see the Sea of Galilee and the sun sets over it and you're looking at all of the greenery on the hillsides, imagine that the only thing you've known is desert and sand. Canaan looked pretty good. Abraham was waiting for someplace better than Canaan. And so were we. Because this is pretty good. Not much to complain about if you've ever sat in Yosemite Valley and looked up at the stars at night. 
walk down the beach on a beautiful afternoon with little clouds over the water and the sun sets. You're kind of going, ah, pretty amazing. Have you ever looked into the eyes of a newborn baby? Mind-boggling. I don't know what it is about infant skin, but it's different than all of us, amen? You like rub, it's like, okay, give me some more of that. (laughs) Pretty amazing. We get to heaven, it's going to be so much better that your pastor can't describe it either. Just like Paul couldn't. And so, Paul ends with, we are confident, I say, rather willing to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Amen? Would you stand and we'll pray together. And I want to ask you, maybe you're here tonight and you don't know for sure where you're going to spend eternity. I'm going to have some pastors come forward right now. And if you don't know, we want to share the truth of the gospel. And that is this, if you will believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, you can become a child of God. If you'll ask God, if you will confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you will believe that Jesus Christ, God's own son, came to this earth, died on Calvary's cross, was buried in the grave and raised three days later for your justification. He paid the price for your sin. If you will believe that simple gospel message, the Bible says you'll be saved. But you have to confess him as Lord. That is the only entrance requirement to heaven. That's it. It's not works plus that. It is believe on his name, who he is and what he did, dying in your place. That is enough to save you, believing by faith, and God will give you the faith to believe. So if you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord, I want you to just simply come and invite Christ into your heart tonight. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that one day when these earthly tents are dissolved, we who know you and love you, we have professed you as Lord, who have our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. When we check out of these bodies, we're going to be checking into a mansion in heaven. We're getting a new body suited for a new heaven and a new life. And Lord, we thank you for that promise. And we believe by faith we do not doubt. Lord, I want to pray right now if there's anyone at all, anyone, anyone in this room that does not know you, that right now they would just simply leave their seat, come forward, and receive you as Lord. Lord, thank you, God, that the gospel is simple, and that you will save anyone who will ask. So that, Lord, they can spend eternity in heaven with the rest of us. And so, God, we bless you for the promise of heaven. We thank you for that glorious hope. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.